Hey, what's up, guys? New episode of Eastman's Elevated coming at you. So we've got a bunch of new and exciting things going on over at Eastman's for 2017. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is is the new podcast, Eastman's Elevated, and and continue to bring you guys, you know, great guests and next level tactics and and help improve your hunting, bring it to the next level. And and, and then we've got Beyond the Grid, an internet hunting TV show. Um, that just launched. You find it on YouTube, find it on the website, uh, but it's in addition to the TV show on the Outdoor Channel. So it's just got some great content on it, and I know those guys are working really hard to to put out good episodes of that. So I'm excited about that. Uh, the, the magazines are just unreal right now. Um, the writers we have working for us and their ideas coming out. I um, our next issue that we got coming out in the Eastman's Hunting Journal is the Mule Deer issue. That's uh, one of my favorite issues of the year. There's just a bunch of great stories about huge, mind-blowing bucks out there, and it's just good to know that those bucks exist on a bunch of different units, whether it's special tags or or whether it's general units. But just to know that they're out there and on public lands for the taking, uh, it gets me fired up. And and then of course uh, all the staff articles in there, and and uh, you know I'm I'm always writing new staff articles and and pour a bunch of research and my heart and soul into those articles to bring you guys good information and then we've got such a good core of, of staff writers in there that that we're all you know they're all doing the same thing i i know brandon mason has an awesome article coming up in the new uh in this mule deer issue um it's called uh well i'm not sure if he's settled on a title or not but it's like outside the box mule deer hunting uh, just going to be a great article. We did a whole podcast about it. It's just, it's an awesome podcast. It's just full of great information. We talked for an hour or more just about mule deer and, and able to talk different tactics and, and different thoughts and theories on it. And, and he, he was a wildlife biologist by trade. And then he worked for the, uh, the mule deer foundation for a while. So he's just a, a wealth of knowledge. So awesome to have him on the podcast. That's a great one coming up. Um, but, but the magazine just keeps evolving and keeps bringing out great stuff so the next issue eastman's hunting journal will be the mule deer issue um, i've got a good article in there uh, i've got an article about hunting high pressure mule deer came out really good i'm really proud of it um, so check that out when you get a chance this episode of the podcast is brought to you by sitka hunting gear uh, Sitka it was the original company that came out with technical hunting clothing and and they just keep evolving their brand and keep coming out with better and better stuff and you know as as the years go on it seems like all my hunting gear has turned to Sitka. I, I think they they have catered it towards me with all their solid colors which I love. I, lo- I love solid earth tone colors and then um, they just came out with a new hunting pattern for 2017. I haven't heard the name of it yet, but I've seen it. I've seen a few posts about it, and the Eastman guys were wearing it. I didn't get on the list for 2017, so I don't have any pieces yet, but I hope to get some. But I really like their pattern. It looks like an open country pattern. Looks like it's going to blend in really good in, in, in all different terrains. But uh, I can't thank Sitka enough for being part of the podcast and sponsoring the podcast. Um, so give them some support when you get a chance. Uh, so today's episode of the podcast, you know, I kind of wanted to talk over, I, I just got back from that New Mexico hunt. I've been building up that late season hunt and, um, man, I take it on the chin down in New Mexico. Um, I, I just struck out. I just couldn't find the buck I was looking for or very many bucks in, in general, you know, it's, um, it's one of those deals you, you do your research and you figure out which tags you're going to put in for and you apply. And then, you know, once you draw the tag, then you get into the research of breaking down the unit and, and figuring out how you're going to hunt the unit. So I had put in for New Mexico and, and, you know, now in hindsight, I can start to see a couple mistakes I made, but you know, I, I'm I'm happy and thrilled I went on the hunt. The country was just unbelievable. It's just filled with these huge boulder rock walls with uh, timber tops and sagebrush bottoms and, and just country that you dream about hunting for mule deer. And, and, and it could have been the year as well. It's a winter range hunt. And so if you don't have the weather, you know, you don't have the mule deer down on the winter range. Um but I had I had done research on this unit. I ended up drawing it as a third choice. So um, every state does their choices a little bit different. So I had put in my first choice was a unit I had done really well in, and I had seen a bunch of big bucks, and I had killed a really nice big buck down in there and done really well. And, and then I just kind of started looking into a second and third choice, and I came up with this third choice. It bordered the unit I had done really well in. 
So I figured all the same migrating deer would be down, you know, on this unit as well. Um, but it just wasn't the case. I mean, I, I got down there, um, I hunted it really effective. I think I had a good game plan for hunting it, covered the entire unit, you know, every section of public land. And I couldn't get down absolutely every single spur road just because the mud got so deep over there. All the roads were tore up and you had to really worry about getting your rig stuck. But, but all the main roads I was able to drive and look for populations of deer. And then I just had a bunch of vantage points picked out to where I could hike to, I could hike to ridges, I could hike to overlooks and look down on these big sagebrush draws. And so, you know, I feel like I had a really good game plan going down there. And, and I know there's some giant bucks that migrate out of Colorado down into these units the thing that really sold me on it was the hunting success with the bow and arrow they said it was 25 percent success rate with a bow and arrow in this unit which was way better than the unit i had been successful in so i figured you know if 25 percent of guys are being successful down there boy i ought to i ought to get some opportunities and be able to find some good bucks but um Man, I don't know if there's 25 bucks in that unit. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are, but I went looking around for different pockets of deer, and and I was able to find some tracks and able to find some does, but it was tough. I went two three days without seeing a deer, um, and I I'm just not used to hunting, you know, populations that are that low. Um, so I I covered country. One day I got a fresh snow, and I thought, okay. I'm just going to travel country. I'm going to cut tracks. I'm going to find, you know, find a pocket of deer that then I can hunt and focus in on. And uh, I'm telling you, I covered so many miles of public land. I don't even know how many square miles of public land. I I glassed for tracks and, and drove roads and, and looked all over. I cut three tracks the whole day three deer tracks just crazy and, and of which when i finally found i thought well I, I better start still hunting and see if i can't catch up to him they were in these thick cedars and um so i i tried tracking them down and the snow was just a little country and, and there was one big track and two so i was thinking a buck with two does but you can't ever be sure um but i i never did catch up to them um i finally saw where they were jumping i must have jumped them out or heard me coming through the snow you're trying to move as quiet as you can but um just the way it goes but you know i i'm glad i take these chances on units and and i'd never find the type of hunting that i've found in the past and the kind of bucks i've found in the past you know by not putting in for units and and i love units that i can hunt every year or every couple of years, you know, sure, I'd love to have a good tag, but sometimes those tags that take you 10, 12 years, you know, you may only draw once or twice in your lifetime and you don't get a chance to learn them and go back to them and use your knowledge for them. And, and so I'm always looking for sleeper spots and, and I found great hunting and general unit tags and, and easy to draw tags. And so I'm not afraid of those tags. Um, I just, you know, and it could have been the weather. I got down there and it was 50 degrees and raining. I, I dealt with lightning storms. I mean, for January, that's kind of wild. So, you know, it could have just been a case where they didn't get the weather. You know, the snow didn't push them from Colorado and the deer weren't in that unit. But but the way I covered that unit, vantage points I got at the different right times of the day, I just saw very few deer and, and didn't, didn't really have any chances to speak of. Just days and days on end, you know, just looking for deer, just trying to find a population of them to hunt but but like i say i don't let it discourage me you know if anything i learn more from my failures than i do my successes and it's just going to drive me harder and i i know it's a game i have to improve on my late season and i i've killed good bucks in the late season but it's a great opportunity to kill big bucks and i just need to continually improve at my late season game and late season spots and um, a couple of the mistakes I made and, and I do want to do more research on the unit and find out why it didn't hunt as well as I thought it would hunt. So I'm going to call the biologist and talk to him. And then I've, I've got a contact in New Mexico, a buddy of mine that I want to call and talk to him about the unit, which I should have done before I ever put in. That was, uh, that was one of the big mistakes I make, you know, in hindsight is he's got such a vast knowledge in New Mexico and he's killed great bucks down there. And, and I consider him a friend and I know he calls me for information on different states and so you know you gotta you gotta use all these assets to your benefit when you're putting in for tags you know you you look through the magazine and you you look through statistics on the website and you you look through all these things but you also you know any buddies that 
you have or any information you can get that way. And, you know, sometimes you take it as a grain of salt. And I, I love doing my, my own research and finding my own places to hunt. Um, but talking to guys is one of the biggest resources you have. And, and you're not looking for their super secret spot. You know, you're just looking for info on, on different units and where it'll be good. And I, I never like to pin people down like I'm trying to take their hunting spot or anything. But I know I could have called this buddy of mine and talked to him and asked him about the unit. And, and heck, I could have put in, you know, for the unit I know in there and then talked to him and he would have given me two more good units that the deer were in. But like I say, I, I really thought it was going to be a quality hunt down there, having it border the unit I was next to. Uh, the other mistake I made is, is I try to hunt away from big populations of people, away from cities and towns. And this one was fairly close to a, a bigger population of people. I just figured it was winter range and it's limited amount of tags. And, and they do give rifle and muzzleloader tags, but it's earlier in the season. And I figured these these deer during archery season would, would be down and on the winter range and unpressured coming from Colorado. But um, just wasn't the case. But like I say, I'll, I'll continue, continually take chances, continually put in for tags, you know, always looking for that next good spot. And I'm, you know, I'm going to strike out here or there, you know, every now and again. And, and like I say, it, if anything, it motivates me even more. It's probably the best thing for me here at the end of the season is to have a failure like that. And uh, I'm, I'm just as driven as ever. I, you know, I've been working out and I've been shooting my bow, but I've had this hunt in the back of my mind kind of thinking about it and as backup and now with that out of the way and thinking about nothing but 2017 hunts um i'm driven Uh, i'm out you know got home and i'm out running in the blizzard you know doing more miles and tougher miles through the snow and just bring it on i just want to be in as good a shape as i can be in and and come into next season as prepared as i can for for these hunts and 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 do as well as i can you know make sure i've got the time and i i've got my responsibilities taken care of and 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 plan for a few of these big hunts and and really try to be successful on these big hunts so um like i say i can't wait for 2017 i'm going to be working harder than ever and and not going to let it discourage me but i do want to learn from it and and be better um man it's disappointing when you get down on a big hunt like that you've been planning for and waiting for and thinking you're going to find good bucks and and then to be empty and just keep covering it day after day vantage point after vantage point mile after mile and just can't turn up a huntable population of deer i mean i saw more deer on my drive home than i saw down on my hunt and, and then i uh you know i'm driving over to my job site when i got back uh, and it's just over the hill i i live in ns it's over the virginia city hill over in virginia city it's about a 15 mile drive and uh there's not even a ton of mule deer in there i mean there's there's a there's a handful of mule deer back and forth and you see them quite a bit in there but the tracks and trails going everywhere i mean i was just dreaming of just finding something like that down in new mexico um so yeah i saw more tracks on my drive to my construction project than i did driving three four five hundred miles of public lands over there but like i say it could be the season could be the unit uh just got to keep evolving keep getting better um, so I wanted to talk on this podcast. I've had a bunch of questions on, on early season or high country mule deer hunting. And I've kind of spent a lot of my time talking about late season tactics and, and mule deer rut tactics. And, you know, I've also talked about elk on the podcast, but you know, when I started this podcast, I like to talk about things that pertain to that time of year. And, um, you know, this, this time of year we're into winter hunting season's over you know we're starting to think about next year's hunt i want to talk about um next year's high country mule deer hunts um man is that a love for me that is absolutely my favorite time of year my favorite hunts of the year it's what i dream about all year long it's what i think about all year long and it's such a great opportunity for big bucks in it it doesn't have to be the high country either you know it can be you know any mule deer country in that early season but i like to focus on that high country 
um, the country is just so rugged and rough and pristine and it takes so much effort to make it back into that country and, and i mean you could day hunt it um here and there a couple spots or if you left way before light but it it seems like day in day out you have to live in that country which means you have to backpack in and and anytime you have to backpack in and live out of the gear in your backpack you're, you're just gonna eliminate crowds you know right off the bat and it and it's just tough and they're they're tough grueling hunts that just wear on you and and uh you know you you prepare for them and and get in as good a shape as you can but you get on those hunts and you always wish you're in better shape i mean um you you can't prepare well enough for these hunts they're they're so tough and and grueling um but but in that you know which is tough um means the most to you when you accomplish your goals or when you come out on top and and just living in that country is tough but but harvesting you know a mature mule deer with with your bow and arrow it's just the absolute ultimate for me um i found high country mule deer hunting back in the early 2000s you know before it was really popular there was a couple guys doing it i remember oh um seeing south cox and cameron haynes they had they had killed those bucks you know and in nevada and you know a few guys were doing it here and there but they were pretty rare to come by and and uh i just i saw it i had been hunting elk and hunting mule deer quite a bit i just thought man that is for me i've got to try that and so i i started researching and figuring out where i could go and and and, you know my original goal you know i just i just wanted to kill a 160 inch deer in the velvet but as you get up there and you start learning these high country spots there is a lot of big mature deer that live up there um you know and you're able to see some of those those next level dream bucks you know eastman's cover bucks that you dream about um stickers and kickers and inlines and you know you dream about 30 inch wide mule deer well you see them 30 you see them 34 36 um they're not everywhere, but there's big mature deer that live in that high country and they're concentrated, you know, in that early time of year, um, those migrating deer are all in that high alpine environment living in those alpine basins up there and, and their guards just kind of off. They're living in bachelor herds and they're focused more on feed than they are danger. Now some, you know, higher pressure units can definitely have deer on edge by the time bow season comes around. Um, but for the, for the most part, they've got more of a lax attitude and it's, you're just, you're living in the most rugged country you can find up there. And so, you know, it's like you're hunting country everywhere you look is, is just a a picture or a painting, you know, it's, it's just full of rocky, cliffy, gnarly alpine basin above tree line. You know, it feels like sheep or goat country and, and there's big muley bucks that are living up there and they blend in and they, they've got such keen instincts and it's, you know, it's a, it's a blue collar hunt. It's not a sheep tag where you got to wait 20 years to draw or come up with 20,000 to go hunt up. You know, there's, there's tags almost every Western state has a high country tag. It's just going to take a lot of hard work, preparation, and you can go in there and you can find big velvet bucks that we all dream about killing. Um, so like I say, my love for high country mule deer, uh, it, it's just my, my absolute favorite thing to hunt. So I, um, yeah, I, I, I get so excited planning these hunts for next season. A lot of times I burn all my vacation on my early mule deer hunts. Um, I just absolutely love them. So, you know, this year coming up, you know, I'm hoping to hunt, you know, and I kind of cycle through states and all, all hunt states every couple years or every three years that a tag comes up. And then I'm always trying to, you know, I've got these standby states now where I've hunted and I've done really well in the high country. And, um, but I, I don't know. I like to adventure hunt. I, I, I don't really like to hunt the same spots. I like to find new spots. And if it's a unit I've hunted before, then I have information. I know where deer are living in there, but I almost like to go cover, you know, another basin or another drainage or another part of the mountain range, or I just like to keep looking, you know, I'm always looking um, for that unbelievable spot that's got those big mature deer in there. And, and, uh, and, and then, you know, there are some spots where I, you know, I can't stay away from, I've hunted them before and I know there's a bunch of big deer living in there and I have to go back and hunt it, but then I'll hunt other micro drainages off the side or I'll have a, a different, better game plan to hunt it. But, um, how I, how I pick my units and I've talked about this before, you know, it's, it's just about, 
beginning your research on, on high country mule deer and and there's good books out there i mean i think i've i've I read every high country mule deer hunting book that was out there, every article I could find, every piece of information. Now we have podcasts to to find information on, but there's so much good information out there, but you just start gathering information. And and, um, I I like to start looking at a state and before I ever look at units, I just look at the mountain ranges in there. I look at their biggest, tallest mountains, you know, um, you know, most states, anything over 10,000 or over 9,000 will hold high country mule deer. And so, you know, I just start looking at the different mountain ranges and how they lay out and the different wildernesses and, and access points. And I just kind of get a broad look at a state that I, that I want to hunt. Um, I, I kind of dissect these mountain ranges and and then I start looking into units, you know, and I start looking at drawing odds, you know, as far as, um, you know, in the, in the bow thing, it's hard to get a grasp on what a good bow unit is because there's great over the counter high country mule deer spots that just take a bunch of effort to get into, but at least the tags start to give you an idea what's popular with the bow guys. You can start to look what's popular with the rifle guys. And, and a lot of those rifle guys aren't hunting those same peaks that you're hunting, but they're hunting where the deer come off, you know, into secondary living and into their, to, to their rut zone. So, you know, you can learn a lot by tag allocation. And, and 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 how many tags in in each area and then how sought after those those tags are in those areas and it starts to give you an idea where the mule deer populations are and in a lot of places you know like my home valley here in the madison valley uh, of montana um we we've got some great mountains around here and this is where i kind of cut my teeth hunting mule deer but at the same time i started hunting mule deer here and i it was just really tough to find what i was looking for i couldn't find those alpine deer that i had i'd read about and dreamed about i read articles about and uh, you know i'm looking in all the right spots and i'm the right elevation and there's just no no mule deer there and 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 a lot of that is our management practices here you know they let you hunt mule deer during the rut and so a lot of our bucks are shot out that way and then they don't control the numbers of how many bucks are shot um the other thing is, is competition for food um, so our elk populations have exploded around this area and we've got great elk hunting around in all our mountains, but the elk and the mule deer compete for the food source. And so you just don't find a lot of mule deer, you know, on the, you'll, you'll see some mule deer here and there on the winter range, early season, they're tough to catch up to. You can cover, you know, tens and, and hundreds of miles and, and not even find a buck that you're looking for. Um, so you got to find the right mountain range that's got a good population of, of mule deer in it. Um, so, so like I say, my home valley, I mean, you can hunt till you're blue in the face and in every year they kill, they kill one or two really nice mule deer, usually with a rifle during the late season, during the rut, they catch up to them somewhere, but I just couldn't put a rhyme or reason to it. And so I started looking in mountain range that had better population of deer. And, and sometimes you'll find mountain ranges that have elk, but they've got, you know, like these, these green meadows that sit up higher without any water source that the elk can't get to, you know, where my Madison Valley, they're all rock tops. And so all the mule deer and the elk compete for the same food source and the elk just seem to, to overtake the food source where there's not as many mule deer. And so I like to find mountain ranges that have really good mule deer populations in them. And, and even here in Montana, you know, we've got some mountain ranges that are just full of high country mule deer that that are really fun to hunt. They're really tough to hunt. They're uh, tough, grueling hunts. Steep, rocky, nasty country. You know, that take a lot of effort to get into. Um, but they're really good mule deer hunting up high in in the alpine environment, and and that's what it's like in in most states. You know, uh, you you can find those areas that have good mule deer populations where, you know, you glass a, a bowl in August, and if it's a good feed in it and and a good place to be and it's up in the alpine you're probably going to see bucks in there you know on every little feeding feature every good mule deer feature there'll be a buck on and so you know you you want to you want to look for these spots in these mountain ranges and as you're looking over these mountain ranges and you're looking over units and statistics and then you know the 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 game agencies have great websites with a bunch of information so it's just about sitting down right now before tags are due so you know 
you're not a day before tags need to be put in that that you actually you know you get on your computer you get on your phone you spend your evenings and just be putting in research if you have a state in mind you know then there's a bunch of great ones out there utah colorado wyoming you know uh, uh idaho montana you know all these great states have great high country mule deer um, you know, you, you just start diving in and trying to figure out which units fit your needs and, and which units, um, you know, have good mule deer populations. And after you can find good mule deer populations, like I said before, um, you know, I like to hunt, I like to look for, uh, what do I say? I, I like to look for, uh, a giant needle and a pile of needles rather than looking for a needle in a haystack. And, and some guys do really good with low population mule deer areas, um, you know, that the guy that comes to mind is, uh, oh, the, the Ridge Reaper show, Jason Carter. Um, that guy finds some giant mule deer in a lot of the spots he hunts. He doesn't hunt any high country. He's mostly truck camping and then hiking into these vast areas, but he hunts where there's low populations of mule deer, not many hunters. And then he's able to find these older age class deer. And so he does really well doing that. And I've always, you know, I, I, I do, I've always thought that I want to take on that challenge and I want to hunt, um, you know, some of these spots with lower populations, but, but giant mule deer. Um, but after my New Mexico experience, I think I need to stick with what I know. Um, so I always like to hunt high populations of mule deer. And then I like to find where the mature bucks are living. So, you know, I, I find a place that's got high populations of mule deer, and then you'll just find drainages or basins that are unpressured, untapped, and untouched. And, and in those basins, instead of finding one mature mule deer, you know, you'll find five of them in there a lot of times or, or more, um, you know, right in that area and surrounding drainages. And so I like to look in, in mountain ranges that have good mule deer populations, and then I like to look within that unit to find you know, the spots that are unpressured and that's where I'll find the big mature muley bucks. And, and I mean, there's giant bucks in, in high pressure areas that just amaze me or not high pressure areas, but I'll, I'll say high pressure hunts and, and, uh, you'll find giant deer that live in those spots. I mean, the spot I hunted in Wyoming, um, was one of those spots this year. I had scouted a couple monsters in there and, and saw, saw a monster on the hunt, but, um, man, I just scouted some giants and, and, um, you know, and then I got in there and gosh, I saw 10 or 12 other hunters in the drainage I was hunting. And I, I should have known there was easier access in there, a trail that went in there, place to water your horses at a pond. I, I mean, I, I should have known better, but I, I just seen so many big deer in there that I just thought I've got to go there and try it. And I was able to get away from the pressure on the fringes. And I did have a plan to get back and in further, you know, in some untouched country where water was tougher to come by, you couldn't get horses. And I think I could have got away from the pressure in there and done well but um sometimes you're scouting um scouting is is really good and it's one of the most important parts about early season high country mule deer i love getting in the area and seeing the actual unit for myself um it just looks so much different than it looks on maps and google earth and and usually it's so much bigger than you ever expect i i look at stuff on google earth and i i think yep i'll be here here and here and i'll be on this right ridge line and i'll roll this way and i'll cover this range uh, and i get in there and i cover about 25 percent of what i thought i could (laughs) it's just it's absolutely huge country i don't even know where i am as i'm hiking up i'm just trying to find the ridge line i want to be on but country always looks different when you get there than when it does with your scouting but scouting lets you know the big picture of what's going on in there um, you know, at least you're pre-scouting on maps and Google earth. It lets you know what drainage is around, where you want to be, what you want to cover. And then you get in there in person and then you get to look at it in real time and, and scouting. You know, I start my scouting season starts July and, and my July and August is pretty much like hunting season for me. I am scouting high country mule deer. I'm looking for those giant next level bucks. I'm looking for where the bucks like, where they hang out. I'm trying to gather all this information. And I, you know, I usually can't take much time from work, but I'll go weekends or long weekends and I'll just do bonsai trips and I'll, I'll just try to get into mule deer country, into high country, find the access points, uh, the, the trailheads, how I'm going to get off the the trails but but that information is, is, is just 
essential for killing big bucks is that scouting um, and sometimes, you know, I'll draw a tag that's too far away where I, I can't scout and I've got to do all my scouting remotely, you know, from my house, but I, I'll try to show up a couple days early to a hunt like that just to kind of look around and find mule deer. And it, it might take me two, three, four days to, to actually find bucks, um, you know, because I haven't done my scouting where scouting, you know, where the bucks are living, you just got to get in there and hunt them. Um, but the one thing scouting doesn't tell you or doesn't show you is hunting pressure. And so, you know, you've got to kind of connect the dots between hunting pressure and trails and, and where people are going to hunt to where you're going to hunt. Um, so, so that's the one thing scouting won't tell you, but scouting, gosh, you're just able to find so many deer in that July and August season there, they've got these red coats on, you know, the, um, and, and they're just a lot easier to glass up than when they have gray coats on, you know, towards the end of August, early September, um, when you're glassing red coats, you can count up so many different bucks and see so many different bucks and and really find those giant mind blowing bucks in that time of year. And nothing gets you more excited for a hunt than than seeing a huge 210 inch mule deer or something, you know. So um, I I love to scout them once I've found the unit I'm gonna put in for, but. Um, I, I really look and just collect data, figure out the state I'm going to be in, you, you know, you, you, just like my buddy in New Mexico, if you, if you've got people that you can talk to about high country deer hunting and pick their brain, you know, and, and like I say, don't look for exact spots, but just talk to them. And if they've hunted it before, a lot of guys are, are um, willing to share information on mule deer units, you know, or, um, mule deer spots but but I just start looking at mountain ranges and when I first started I didn't there was nobody I could talk to about mule deer units I just had to collect the data um, you know it, I put in a you can always put in a call to a biologist you know and and talk to them about mule deer populations and the unit you're putting in for but but you just keep collecting da- data from from every place you can and, and you just start to kind of connect the dots to what what's going to be a good high country mule deer spot what's going to have a good high population of mule deer and, and then I'll even start looking at the mountain range and you know, the basins and how they lay out and kind of how I think I'll hunt it and, and the spots I want to look at. And I start getting excited about the unit. And, and that's where I pull the trigger then and, and I, I put in and see if I can't draw it. And I've usually, I've usually got a pretty good idea if I'm going to draw it my first year, my second year for, or if I got to put in for a couple, three, four years, but I, I kind of find the mountain range I want to hunt before I ever start applying, but just pick one of these states that you guys have heard about that you guys like, or that you guys might have some knowledge about, um, pick a mountain range and start doing your research and start planning, you know, an early season high country hunt. I, there's just, there's nothing better with your bow and arrow. Um, you know, it's, it is going to be tough and grueling, so you you do want to prepare as much as you can, and that's where this early season training comes in, um, and, and this is what drives me to be in good shape. I mean, it is tough to survive when you start hunting up at 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, you know, 12,000 feet in Colorado, 13,000 feet. Uh, it, it wears on you. Um, it it, it's tougher, you know, I've ran marathons and ultra marathons. Nothing is tougher than a, than an eight or a 10 day high country mule deer hunt. You're just constantly walking up hills, uh, constantly gaining elevation, putting miles on, and it just beats you up. Um, you know, you, you gotta get your backcountry gear together. You know, if you're hunting high country mule deer, you got to figure out, you know, how you can, can live and pack everything you need in your backpack and survive up there. And, and when you're backpacking, I, I mean, a pound makes a difference. I, I like to go super light. I'm not that big of a guy and I get myself in good shape, but I just notice every pound wears on me more and more. And so I, I, I'm just a minimalist at heart and I try to just go the bare minimum of what I need. Now, of which you've got to have the correct gear to be able to survive. And, you know, like I found over the years, you know, a bivy sack and, and I used a bivy sack, but when you're in a hunt for eight or 10 days in a bivy sack, um, it's rough. You just don't get that good a night's sleep. Um, the bivy sack, if it rains, you've got to pull it over your face, you know, and you can't breathe. It'll condensate inside. You know, I've had it before where I brought a bivy sack and I've had mosquitoes on, on a couple different hunts. 
and the mosquitoes will just eat you alive. And my my uh, bivy sack has a netting on it, you know, so I can just pull the net over so I, then I don't have to breathe inside that thing and condensate or whatever. And the one night I had mosquitoes bite through the netting and, and bite all over my face, about 15 bites on my face. And so, you know, I've just found over the years that that's not a place I want to cut weight is by using a bivy sack. They just don't sleep that well. You're not protected from the elements. And then, you know, you get these big rainstorms in or lightning storms in and you're trying to ride it out in a bivy sack and, and it's rough living. You don't get a good night's nice rest and then you're sleep deprived the next day. And so, you know, my gear, I've kind of, I've kind of turned towards, I like this, um, and I've used three season tents before, but now I like these bivy tents and these bivy tents are just a, a slick way to go. So they're a combination in between a bivy sack and a tent and they're usually a single wall design. They, they usually have a bathtub floor in them. Um, the ones I've used are really well ventilated. I've been using like the six moons, uh, lunar solo for years sets up with a hiking pole, um, weighs 24 ounces, so uh, about a pound and a half for a bivy tent, and it's just been a great shelter for me. And so I've kind of got that route, you know, versus a bivy sack, which weighs a pound. So, um, you know, you just kind of find your system, what works and what doesn't. Uh, sleeping bag, you know, most guys pack too heavy of a sleeping bag, too warm of a sleeping bag. But there again, I mean, you don't want to be cold up on the mountain. And so, you know, I've noticed that the temperature ratings – um, even with the best name brands are not a comfort rating. So, you know, for these high country hunts, I mean, the, I bought a 30 degree bag and that's good to about 40 degrees, I'd say. And so, you know, I'll use that on the super early warm ones. Most of the time, generally, I just use those on my scouting trips. Um, I use a 15 degree marmot hydrogen. Um, I think it's a hydrogen, um, bag for, for most of my hunts now. And it's a 15 degree bag and usually high country mule deer hunting. It usually doesn't get much colder than about 25 degrees. And then it's, you know, most of the time it's 30 to 40 degrees at night. And so this bag's been perfect for me. Um, the other big key to this is a sleeping pad. This is a place I do not save weight on. Um, I want the most comfortable pad I can get for the best nice night's rest I can get. Um, I just found that my body recovers so much better when I get a good night's rest and, and it, the hunt doesn't seem to wear on me as much. I wake up fresh in the morning if I can get a good night's sleep. And so, um, you know, and I don't go crazy on my pad, like a back a queen size mattress in the mountains or anything like that. But, um, I do pack a really good mattress right now. I'm using a sea to summit mattress. It's a double wall design. So it blows up off both sides. Um, it's a good one. I really like it. Um, and you want to get a good R factor out of them. I think it's got an R value of like an R5 is usually a pretty decent one. And that R5 will help keep that, that cold from the ground from seeping into you and getting into your sleeping bag because you could have the warmest sleeping bag in the world, but if you don't have a good mattress, you'll get cold in the middle of the night. But I just found that it's so important to get a good night's rest that, that I want to have a good shelter up there. And it's still, I mean, it's a minimalist camp. You're talking a, a pound and a half for, for my tent. You're talking, you know, a pound and a half for my sleeping bag. That's three pounds. And then a pound for my mattress. So, you know, all, all around four pounds, under five pounds, let's say I've got my, my whole camp, my whole sleeping setup, you know, that's, what's going to keep me alive in the mountains. And, and, and so that's what I, what I use for my system. And then, you know, you just have to, you have to adopt this minimalist attitude anything that you don't absolutely need, you don't bring. And so, um, I've cut weight before by, you know, having a stove's nice, you know, I, um, uh, tell you the truth. I love a cup of coffee in the high country. I know it dehydrates you more. I know it, uh, you know, it, 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 it's more weight bringing a coffee and a little press or even the coffee bags or instant coffee. Starbucks makes these instant coffees. Um, but I, I just, there's something about feeling human and feeling normal, normal when you're in the high country. And, I love coffee. I, it, um, it's the one drug I have, you know, I, I, I absolutely have to have in the morning or I don't have to, I mean, I can go without it. And sometimes on these high country hunts, I don't have it every day if I'm low on water or whatever, but I do just love coffee. I mean, I have it every day when I'm, when I'm out and living a, uh, as a civilian. And so, you know, when I'm up in the high country, if I'm going without coffee, you know, I feel a little fuzzy in the mornings and a little weird and, uh, um, you know, too, I can get down and, and if I'm trying to conserve water, I can go without it for a couple days and, and I don't drink caffeine throughout the day. And so, um, 
you know, I can do without coffee, but I just, it makes me feel human. It makes me feel normal. And even if I'm not having it in the morning, um, if I just have it like after my morning hunt or, you know, maybe two days goes by where I'm conserving water and then I finally make it to a creek, well, I'll, I'll make up a cup of coffee and I can't tell you what it does for my mood and, and, and my well-being on a hunt. Like I say, I just feel human again. All of a sudden my brain's firing and I'm, you know, all of a sudden anything I was down about or, or, you know, if the hunt's dragging on me, all of a sudden it's just like this pick me up where I just, you know, I start thinking about the hunt again and what I'm going to do next and the buck. I saw and how I'm going to move different and what I'm going to do. And, and so really, I mean, coffee is kind of a secret weapon for me in the high country and, and some guys leave it out, but, um, it's something that, that I bring. I've got a little lightweight French press that all comes in a cup and then I can bring some ground coffee just because I, I'm such a coffee snob that I am starting to, the, the Starbucks instant is good and it's good in the high country, but, um, got a, a, a fresh cup, a fresh pressed Joe. It doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that. And so, um, it just makes me feel a little bit more human in the mountains. And there's something for psychologically when you're on these tough and grueling hunts, things that you can do to bring your mood up and, and, and help you continue on in the hunt. But that's, that's one of my secret weapons is, is coffee. I just love coffee. And so, you know, and if I've, if I have enough water, you know, I'll, I'll wake up an hour before life and I'll lay in my bag and I'll fire up my stove outside my tent and I'll boil water out there and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll have it in my bag as it's all dark in there and I'm just theorizing about the day and where I'm going to glass from and where I need to get and it just fires me up to, to go hunt really um so so coffee secret weapon but so I do pack coffee but what you know you got to look at where you can cut weight and and food I try to be about a pound and a half of food per day that I'm hunting and I work out, you know, a, a good diet, a uh, whole foods, but you know, I, I've also got stuff that tastes good in there, stuff that I feel like eating. Um, and, and so I try to pack a pound and a half per day, uh, you know, and I figure out what I'm going to need in there to, to keep me going and, and, and to, to keep me on it. And one thing where I can cut weight, um, you know, is, is by cutting my stove out. Now, no stove means no cup of coffee, no stove means no cooked foods, but you know, it's, it's made the difference before, uh, on hunts for me, you know, where I've cut that weight out. I, I can remember being at the Nevada trailhead and I had put in for this Nevada unit. I had already killed a really nice buck in Nevada, but this was a new unit I had never been to. And it, it was far enough away where I wasn't able to scout. I did all my scouting remotely and so I, I showed up with my pack and, you know, I, I run pretty light. I, I, a scope's a necessity for me, a scope and a tripod, because I want to be able to look at deer and, and see what, what they are before I make my way all the way over there. I, I, I want to know how big he is. And, and also a scope really helps me keep track of deer, like as they're moving and going to their bed. So scope and tripod essential, but I've got my weight down pretty good. One of the biggest places I cut weight is with my pack. Um, you know, a lot of these packs and companies are getting better nowadays, but packs used to weigh six, eight pounds just for your pack alone before you ever get anything in it. And I saw that and I started going to these minimalist packs and now you can get a, a good lightweight pack that packs the weight really well. I mean, three pounds, four pounds, you can have a good pack and that's a place where you can cut four pounds out of your pack weight. Um, but every pound makes a difference for me. And so I really only bring the essentials. Um, so I showed up to the Nevada trailhead and I had everything packed in my, in my backpack and I got there and the place I was going to take off from, there must've been a hundred rigs in the parking lot. There was rigs everywhere. There was bow hunters walking around guys asking me where I'm going to hunt, where I'm going to go. I'm thinking this is a freaking nightmare. Like I, this is my worst nightmare. I've ran into a bunch of pressure. I've got everything planned out. This is where I'm leaving from, you know, and, and this is where I'm going in. Um, so, so I've got to go super light. So I, I think I was like around, I want to say 45 pounds, 44 pounds. That's usually what I am for, you know, like a 10 day hunt with my stove, my scope, everything I need in it. I tore apart my bag. I cut out my stove. I cut out any cookable foods. I just brought dry foods and I was able to get my pack weight down to about 38 pounds or so. And that was with a little bit of water too and took off. And, um, I mean, I, I finally killed my buck 20 miles from the trailhead. Um, took me 11 hours to pack out that deer. I had to go over the top of two 11,000 foot peaks. Uh, but it's one of, one of my greatest triumphs as a bow hunter was being able to go into this access where there's all 
all these hunters and I just kept going and going until I could find good mature deer and I finally found this drainage that held a bunch of really nice bucks in it and, and since then um, you know I found another access to get to that point you know that was closer but you know one of the reasons that made it so good is there was 10 miles of ridgeline without any water um, so if guys don't have water they just can't survive there and and guys can't pack enough water for enough days you know I've got my water consumption down you know to where I've said before 32 to 50 ounces a day and I can get by and get through um so I just went for it on this hunt. I cut my pack weight down, ended up just doing mile after mile after mile, and I started seeing some smaller bucks, and, and I kept going, and finally I found these drainages that have mature bucks, and, uh, you know, day eight, I I harvested a, a really nice, solid buck, a really big, heavy, older age class, four-point buck. Yeah, I think he was like mid-170s right in there, but, but a really nice buck for my first time being in that mountain range and able to close the deal on him and, and saw some some really nice bigger bucks too that I was able to chase around and, and able to kill him way back there, but it, it was all due to cutting my weight down because the, the less weight I have on my back, the more miles I can travel and the more effective I can be. Um, so I'm always looking to cut weight. And so on, on shorter trips, I definitely cut my stove out. If I'm three days or whatever, I'll, I'll cut my stove out. No problem. Um, cut it out. Uh, no stove, no cooked foods. You, you lose three, four pounds right off the top. And, and so that, you know, that extra weight, it just makes a difference, especially if I'm hunting with my pack on, um, a lot of times, you know, what I'll do or my usual, my usual MO is to travel with my backpack and travel miles. And then once I find a decent camp spot up high, I'll set camp there, look around, see if there's any deer around. If not, then I move my camp on further. But sometimes I'll travel with my pack and just hunt with my pack on camp wherever I end up at night. But, you know, sometimes it takes traveling these miles to find where these deer are refuging and where, where the bigger, more mature bucks are. Um, so, so that's one way I cut down on my weight, but a pound and a half of food per day. Um, if you don't know where you're going to get water, then you've got to pack enough water. Water's the heaviest thing you got to pack. I mean, for me, I'm always taking three days worth of water, you know, until I can find water, unless I just absolutely know there's a creek I can fill up or a lake or a spring. And, and, and that's what pays dividends in, in mule deer country is knowing where you can get water. Um, there's so many little secret seeps and, and places where you can drop 500 feet of elevation into a bottom and find water right in there, you know, and, and sometimes in mule deer country, you've got to drop 2000 feet elevation down to get water. And that's a killer. You don't want to have to be doing that every day or you can't, you know, it'll, it'll make you give in. And so water is so important when you're hunting high country mule deer. Um, and that's where your scouting really pays off is finding those spots where you can get water, knowing the country, knowing how you can survive. And that way you can go into country light with a 32 ounce bottle to get you in, fill up your water at your secret seep or your secret spring, and then you're good to go for another two, three days and, and you know, you can get water there. Um, so, so water's the big thing. You know, if I don't know where I'm going to get water, I usually have my hundred ounce bladder and two 32 ounce bottles, 164 ounces of water, dang near nine, 10 pounds worth of water. And, and, and also, you know, when I'm leaving a fill up spot and I'm traveling a ridge line and I don't know where the next spot I'm going to get water is, you know, I'll pack a lot of water on that ridge just to make sure I can survive up there and hunt up there. Um, so your water management is such a huge piece of the puzzle. And, and then you just go through your gear. I mean, you don't need a bunch of extra clothes. Like I say, with the new technical clothing nowadays, the Sitka gear that you can get, um, you know, I pretty much have my layers, but I'll, I'll bring an extra merino wool t-shirt. So I'll have two t-shirts and I, I might have two plus the one I wear in, you know, cause I'll sweat the one out on the, on the way in. Um, but usually I can make do with two, I mean, a couple pairs of under pair, underwear, maybe three. I mean, you get to turn them inside out and make them last. I mean, you're just trying to cut down all your weight. Socks are a big one. You know, you don't want to give yourself athlete's foot or sweat out your socks really bad. But, you know, there's a lot of days where I can stretch socks two days instead of one. And so, you know, and when I'm going in, I have four or five pairs worth of socks. You can also, when you get water, you can wash them in the creek. Um, and clean them up and then dry them, you know, set them over a tree branch or whatever. Usually you're in the early season where it's warm, where you can dry them out. And, and same thing with your t-shirt there, but you really want to try to go as minimalist as you can. Then I, 
I always have a puffball jacket and I and I always have my rain jacket. Those are two things I always bring. Usually a lightweight rain jacket, but you're going to run into thunderstorms and you're going to have to ride out weather and your clothing is the one protection you have. And I mean, you're back in there with with your life in your own hands. The decisions you make and the things that you do, you know, are how you keep alive back in there. And so it's really I, it's a different style of hunting and it, it's what like I told you guys it's what I've fallen in love with it's um you just get back you get back to to what it means to hunt and, and survive in the mountains and and live off your own wit and and uh you know you got to keep yourself safe back there and pack enough food and manage your water and so there's all these things that go into it which, which just make it that much cooler of an experience and when you are successful i mean it just absolutely means the world you know to me i know all my high, high country mule deer i know how hard i had to work for them and the trials and tribulations i had to go through uh and they, they just absolutely mean the world to me but it, it's just a really cool way to to hunt um you know when you're when you're backpack hunting like that um, so as far as clothes, puffball jacket, that's essential. Even on warm weather hunts, guys won't pack that many clothes or not enough clothes. And like I say, I'm not bringing a bunch of extra coats or a bunch of extra stuff in that, in that way. I just want to know that morning glassing, evening glassing, I can throw on that puffball jacket. I love the ones with a hood and they're going to be warm. It's like putting your sleeping bag on. Um, so I, I always have one of those jackets with me. Always have my rain jacket to ride out storms. And then I have my Moreno World shirt. And then usually what I'll do is I'll um, bring a sun shirt. Um, now, a sun shirt is kind of new to the market. They Sitka does make one lightweight uh, shirt. And then I'll also use um, all like fishing shirts and things, um, light colored fishing shirts. And so you guys will see me with those lightweight hoodies. Um, I love those lightweight hoodies. You get in a high elevation, that sun is so intense and brutal that I've sunburned myself really bad before. My ears, the back of my neck. Hell, I've sunburned my hands and I work outside every day but when you get that high in elevation that sun is that much more intense up there um, and sometimes where you're glassing, you're above tree line and you're exposed to the sun. And so these lightweight hoodies, usually they've got the thumb hole on them so you can cover the top of your hands. And then they've got a hood that you can put over so you're not going to just fry your face, fry the back of your neck, fry your ears. So I always have a lightweight sun ho- hoodie that I have in there. And then I have um, one fleece I'll wear, like a, just a hooded fleece. Uh, not even a fleece, just a synthetic hooded um, piece of gear. I can't remember what Sitka calls there, but but they've got a great hooded piece. And so um, those will be my my layers, Moreno t-shirt, sun hoodie, and then I've got my regular synthetic hoodie, and then I've got a puff ball when I need it when it gets cold, and I've got my rain jacket, and that's all I bring. One change of shirt, you know, a change of underwear, and a few changes of socks. As far as pants, I usually bring one thing of long johns, usually a lightweight merino wool long john that I'll wear mornings and evenings to take the chill off. And then I like a really lightweight pant for that early season hunting. I mean, my, my favorite pant... Um, is like a quick drying pant that that uh, can get wet and can dry real quick. Um, but but I've really liked wearing those pants over the years. The really super lightweight ones that weigh about nine ounces or whatever. And, and I've had really good luck with those things wearing those. Um, and then and then my one thing, a uh, uh, merino wool. Make sure you bring a baseball cap. You know, just so you can keep the sun out of your eyes. You know, when you're glassing up there. But um, and, and then I just got a few items that I'll have in my pack, but I just don't get too carried away. I'm a minimalist. I, I just, if I don't absolutely need it, I don't bring it. So, you know, you, you got to have your headlamp, you bring that. Usually I bring extra batteries cause you never know. Um, but I've got this new black diamond headlamp. It's got a really cool feature on it where you press and hold the button for six seconds and it locks it. And so when it locks it, it won't let it come on in your pack. So that was the biggest way I was losing my headlamp was uh, it was coming on in my pack and then I'd get it out and my batteries were dead. And so I do bring like, uh, I think mine takes three or four AAAs or something like that. So I usually bring a couple extra AAAs. Um, As far as water, there's some different ways to go there. Um, The pumps are nice um, and I've used those. I, um, you know, 
they're effective. Um, I think I have got Jardia before um, using a pump. Um, I got Jardia one time um, in the mountains, and so you got to be careful where you're getting your water from and how you're getting it. Lately, I've been using this um, this light, and it's fluorescent light that you put in your water for 30, uh, maybe it's a minute or 90 seconds, depending on how much water stirred around in the UV light then kills any bacteria in there. And I've been using that. It's really lightweight. It's not very bulky, um, and and that works good. It does take batteries, and it is a mechanical device that can break down on you. And so I always have just a handful of iodine tablets in my pack just in case it breaks down on me. Um, so so you can start to hear, you know, as I talk about the different gear, how I'm prepared if this breaks or if that breaks, or you, you know what I'm saying. You're you're you've got to survive in the mountains for ten days, and if you lose your water filter, well, you're either getting jardia or you know I guess you could boil your water but um you just got to be prepared for different situations that arise but yeah i always got my headlamp uh i always do bring an extra release i don't want to be in there and and uh, lose my release um on my bow so i bring an extra release i i bring just a really small kit and this is something i've struggled with over the years is whether or not to bring allen wrenches or not bring allen wrenches so this is this is um bitten me in the past where i haven't brought allen wrenches i remember on my goat hunt and something on my quiver got loose or something to where then my quiver wanted to rotate on my bow. And I fought that a little bit. Um, you know, it's not a bad idea to have Allen wrenches. It's just, you know, it's more ounces in your pack. And it's like, um, you know, or do you tighten everything down and put a little dab of super glue on each bolt before you go in so you know nothing's going to move? I mean, I've played that game before. So I bet you I'm half and half on whether I bring Allen wrenches or don't. Um, and again, it's a risk and just talked about being prepared for everything. And if you don't have Allen's, you're definitely not prepared for everything. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a good idea to bring like a Leatherman in. It's just got pliers on it and it's got a bunch of different tools. And I just can't tell you how many times something breaks in the high country that you've got to kind of fix or repair, or do a backcountry repair. And a Leatherman, you know, it it's it's worth its weight in gold in the backcountry. You know, you can fix dang near anything. Oh, that's another thing with my mattress. So I do have that air mattress. I do bring in... Um, it's a little waiter patch repair kit. It's not that many ounces, but I bring that in to patch any leaks if I was to get any leaks in my air mattress. Um, so I do bring that. Um, gosh, I I do bring just a touch of super glue that I could use if I cut to, to get up a cut or, um, you know, I can use it to fix things or um, anything like that. So I do bring a little bit of super glue in there. I bring a little bit of serving in case I've got to tie something in or do a backcountry repair. Um, let's see, what else do I bring in there? I mean, as little as possible, always make sure you got your TP. <laughs> That's a necessity. You don't want to have to be wiping with leaves up there. Um, yeah, TP, gosh, what else am I forgetting? Um, man, you know, there's a few small items. I mean, you definitely want to always make sure you got your spoon. Um, a couple paper towels is nice to wipe out anything. Um, Man, I mean that's that's about my pack, and and anymore I like to be low forties or high thirties when I'm going in for multiple day. And if I'm going in for five days, I definitely want to be under forty. Uh, but I just take that minimalist attitude that the more miles I can cover, the more effective I can be. Um, and so I really try to go light. And I mean, you, those mountains climbing to ten thousand feet is rough. Um, now you strap on 40 pounds of pack and try to make it to the top of that 10,000 footer and look out. I mean, the de- degree of difficulty goes way up. Um, so it's, it's one of the toughest, most grueling things you'll, you'll ever try to do. And, and like I say, it's, it's more than a marathon or an ultra marathon. It takes more out of you. And so you gotta, gotta be prepared. I mean, right now is the time where we gotta be putting in our miles and hitting our weights and, and gotta be preparing for that test that the back country is going to give to us. So, you know, we research our tags, put in for our tags, start our scouting, um, but just get our bodies ready for it. it it's going to be the toughest challenge we ever face. And I, I know, you know, I've been on, 
you know, uh, 20 of these high country mule deer hunts, 30 of these high country mule deer hunts, maybe more. And I know every year it'll be the toughest thing I do. And and next year will be no different. I, I got a couple States I got my eye on and I'm really going to be focused on it. And I want, I want to pull, you know, I want to get one of those 200 inches again, and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to scout it. I'm going to hunt hard, but I'm going to pull it off on one of those giant bucks. And, and I'm going to put in the work now and, and make sure I'm ready for it. And, and, and you guys should be doing the same. Um, but so gosh, dang it. I've already talked for an hour. Get me going on high country mule deer. And I'll probably have to do about five episodes on high country mule deer just because it's such a passion of mine hunting them. Um, but, but make sure you guys are planning for a high country mule deer hunt this year. They're just the ultimate adventure hunt. And, and with a bow and arrow, it just doesn't get any better than that. You know, watching and seeing those giant mule deer and, and chasing them with the sharp stick. So, uh, make sure you get your plan, start researching mountain range and units and, and put in your work now so you're ready to go. So so when tags are due or when you the deadlines come up, you know you know which units you're putting in for, you know which states you got a good chance of drawing and which states you're, you're going to have to get some points. But get yourself a plan for these high country mule deer because it is just an absolute riot on, on, on public lands. You know, it, 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 it's our best chance at giant mule deer, I think. You know, that late season is good but there's at least for me nothing has been better than that early season big giant velvet bucks um so make sure you're putting in the preparation and getting ready um so again i want to thank um sitka for being a sponsor on the podcast today um just a great company and and uh i want to thank eastman's for for getting Sitka on board with this podcast and and standing behind everything and believing in the podcast um they're just doing doing great work for it and and uh and, and furthermore i'm just going to continue to work and get better i've got um, you know, I'm just getting back from this hunt and I had a couple delays. And so, um, and I really like doing these solo episodes where I can get out a bunch of information about a topic, but, um, I, I really learn a lot by having new guests on. So I've got a couple that are recorded now with really good guests. I was telling you guys about the one with Brandon Mason. It's just an awesome episode. Um, it's coming up, I think, uh, into January, we're going to release that one. I've got another one recorded uh, that's just awesome, and then I've I've got a few guests lined up, and then a page full of guests that I've got written down that I'm going to hit up. But um, you know, these good hunters, you're able to sit down with them, and and a lot of what we do is the same, but they also have different takes and have learned different things over the years, and so you know that's really what's going to get good information out to you guys. And so I'm really working hard to put out some really good episodes with really good guests, and and just continually try to grow and evolve this podcast, you know, to, to Eastman's elevated to, to be the absolute best we can put out there. So again, just want to thank Eastman's and, and thanks Sitka again for the sponsorship. You guys are putting out some great gear. And, and so till next time, guys, uh, make sure you're working hard, putting in the work and, and getting ready for your 2017 hunts to, to make your dreams a reality. So we'll talk to you guys soon.